That's where they're at. Psalm 84. If you have your Bibles, uh, iPads, phones, wherever you follow along, I'd encourage you to turn to Psalm chapter 84. That's where we're going to be this morning. I'd like to start by reading Psalm 84. It says this. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home. The swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you the opportunity to open your word, to read your word, that your word ultimately, Lord, I pray that it would read us, that it would read our hearts, that it would expose where we are not fully committed and devoted to you, Lord. May we see the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, this morning. May we be reminded of the salvation that is available in no other name but the name that is Jesus, Lord. May our hearts be stirred once again to search after you, to seek after you, to long after you, Lord. Lord, we pray this morning that as we hear your word, that your word would do a work in us. Lord, it's in your name we pray these things now. Amen. Has anyone heard any complaints this past year? Dumb question? I've heard some complaints. I've heard complaints about government restrictions. I've heard complaints about the lack of government restrictions. I've heard complaints about an overabundance of government assistance. And I've heard complaints about the lack of sufficient government assistance. Have you guys heard these complaints? Complaints about social distancing and masks or complaints about those places that don't exercise those policies? Even the church, I've heard complaints. Complaints about online service. Or maybe complaints about embracing the risks, the potential risks of going back in person. Complaints. You've heard them, I've heard them, we've all heard complaints, but why do we complain? Is it not because there is a disconnect between the reality we are experiencing and the reality we would desire? And so we complain. Complaints tell us something about what matters to us. 
They tell us what's important to us, and I would argue that complaints even begin to reveal some of the idols that often lay dormant in our hearts. When God rescues Israel from slavery in Egypt, okay, you have the ten uh, plagues, and then God delivers them, and they cross the Red Sea, and in Exodus chapter 16, it doesn't take very long before Israel what? Complains, you guys know. What do they say? Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. But you have brought us into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Moses' words uh, bring meaning to what Paul later says when he says in Philippians chapter 3, their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Our complaints reveal something about the idols that rest in our hearts. And in a moment of humble honesty, in a spirit of contrition, I think we can all for a moment acknowledge just how easily our hearts go astray. How often do we get caught up in a moment and we raise earthly things to the status of utmost importance? National things, political things, family things, relational things, career or vocational things, personal emotional things. We raise them to utmost importance to the point where if they aren't exactly as we desire, it feels as though life lacks purpose, meaning, value. Psalm 84. Psalm 84 seeks to reset our wandering hearts, to refocus and redirect our hearts on the God who saves us. The God who should rest at the very core of our being, at the very foundation of our desires. The God who sent his son to save us. Now Psalm 84, historically, it was a pilgrimage psalm. What that means is it was, it was a song that, that Israelites would sing when they were on a journey to God in Jerusalem at the temple, and this particular psalm was probably sung during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And so you can begin to grasp the imagery of Psalm 84 very easily as you start to follow through the psalm. You see right there, Psalm, 1, or psalm 84 verses 1 through 4, you see the language that is used of a journey, do you not? First, we see an intense desire to be in the presence of God. And that desire is communicated. My soul longs. Yes, it even faints for the courts of the Lord. You can sense the distance of someone who lives outside of Jerusalem, as many Israelites did, lived far away from Jerusalem, and they longed to be there. They longed to be in Jerusalem. They longed to be at the temple. We see the journey, verses 5 through 7. As you're reading through there, you see journey language. We see this reference to highways to Zion. We see reference to going through a valley. And finally, a sense of arrival as we appear where? Before God in Zion. We've made it. 
Verses 8 and 9 are, are kind of an interesting uh, interlude. I'll call them a prayer interlude. Uh, the psalmist then takes a moment to pray for the king, which may seem very arbitrary. We're, we're going to the temple. Why are we praying right now for the king? But it's very important in the na- nation of Israel that they would pray for the king. Because when wicked kings ruled in Israel, what happened at the temple? The temple was often defiled with the foreign idolatry of the ancient Near East. And so going to the temple often lost its power, its significance, because the temple had been defiled. And so we needed to pray as Israelites for the blessing on the king that we would have one of the good kings so that the worship could be restored for the people of Israel so that we could once again go and experience the presence of God in the temple. And finally, in these final verses, we see the people rejoicing in the presence of God. There's a celebration, a celebration of the preferability of God's goodness over every other option. For better is what? One day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. When we understand the psalm being a journey, a pilgrimage, we understand it's not a terrifically confounding psalm. However, something happens in the nation of Israel because the temple gets destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come in and they they destroy the temple and they take the entire nation of Israel and they exile them off to Babylon. And so a pilgrimage was no longer going to be had. The people were no no longer going to physically march to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Tabernacles. And so we discover that in Israelite uh, history, the, the Psalms took on a more spiritualized meaning. Psalm 84 becomes filled, uh, a, a psalm of the life of faith and the privileges of living together in faith, with faith in God. Said differently for our modern language, Psalm 84 is what I would call a discipleship psalm. It recounts our journey until one day we see God's face, Revelation 22, 4. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is I'd like to recount that journey. And as we recount the journey through Psalm 84, we're going to discover three marks of discipleship that we could maybe put into practice in our own lives. Let's start right here in verse 1. The first mark, I would say, is this, is the all-encompassing desire for God and for His presence. How lovely is your dwelling place. That word lovely, that word lovely, it it seems to immediately when we read it, it seems to refer to the loveliness or the aesthetic beauty of the dwelling place of God. And there's no denying the fact that Solomon's temple that Israel would have wanted to visit was a lovely place. It was a magnificent place. Solomon got all the best artisans, all the best craftsmen. He searched out the best wood, the best materials, the the most precious golds, silvers, and bronze, the most precious stones, and and, and even the most precious fabrics. And he gathered all of those things together to build a temple to God. And and I, I believe that if we were to be able to see it, it would have been magnificent. 
We would have been astounded at the aesthetic beauty of the temple. However, for the Israelites, this word lovely actually speaks of beloved. And so the person loved the temple, not because of its aesthetic beauty, but because God was there. Notice as the the psalmist continues his desire for God. My soul longs. Yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy. Where? Where? To the living God. Heart, soul, and flesh. All of his entire being is is consumed with the desire to to know God and to be in God's presence. Psalm 42 is a companion psalm. Also, a pilgrimage that's communicated there. It says this, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants, what? For you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear? Where? Before God. Psalm 63 similarly says this, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts. You see the echoes of Psalm 84. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints. Where? For you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So what is it about God that makes God so desirable that our entire being would be consumed with a desire for God? Psalm 84, the psalmist shows a preference for a particular title, particular name of God. He refers in verse 1 to Lord of hosts. He comes back to this language in verse 3. He comes back to it again. You'll see down in verse 8 and once again in verse 12. If you have a different translation, I, I have the ESV here. But if you have different translations, this particular name or title for God, it's translated differently. Lord God Almighty, Lord of armies, Lord of heaven's armies, the God who is all-powerful or Lord who rules over all. It literally means Yahweh, the personal God of Israel, over armies in a very literal sense. But it is the name of God that explains and expounds upon the power of God and the rule of God over all of his creation, including all nations. And all nations' armies. A name name and a title that speaks of God's power. And whenever the people of Israel find themselves uh, lacking in resources, having insufficient resources in the face of opposition, what is the name of God that they would call upon? But the Lord of hosts. You know some of the stories, perhaps, Hezekiah is faced with the threat of Assyria's armies, and Isaiah speaks to him and says, they're not going to conquer you. And so Hezekiah goes before God to pray, and what does he pray as Assyria is coming against the nation of Judah? He says this, O Lord of hosts, in Isaiah 37, 16, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. When David, David stands before Goliath and, and Goliath begins to, begins to ridicule him. You sending me kids. I come in with sticks and stones like a, I'm, the, I'm Goliath, right? 
And David goes, gets and gathers his stones because everybody's afraid. Our resources aren't enough to conquer this giant, this champion of the Philistines. And David, he gathers his resources. He's like, if nobody will go out, I'll go out. Not because his confidence is in himself. No, what does he say when he marches out to face giants, Goliath's ridicule? 1 Samuel 17, David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver me into your hands, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. There's a prophet prophet Elisha, and Elisha had been communicating to the Israelite kings when the Syrian kings were going to come to fight against them and battle them, and the Syrian king finds out that, hey, there's this prophet of God, this man of God, and he keeps kind of letting out your plan, and that's why they keep getting away and escaping, being conquered by you. And so he says, well, where is this man of God? And, and his people search out, and they say, well, he, he's down in a city called Dothan. Why don't you go to Dothan? And so they march out with the Syrian armies and they, and they surround the entire city of Dothan. 2 Kings chapter 6, we get a beautiful picture of what it means that God is the Lord of hosts. When the servant of the man of God, that is the servant of Elisha, rose early in the morning and he went out. Behold, an army, this is the Syrian army, with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man. He saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Did he have any need to fear Syrian army that was surrounding the city? No. Why? Because the Lord of hosts was on his side. The Lord of hosts, who is terrifying to God's armies, is a great comfort to God's people. Indeed, verse 11, we see God is a sun and a shield. However, notice this. This Lord of hosts is a personable and knowable God. When we think of God Almighty, God All-Powerful, God Commander of Armies, we think of God King, we think of these terms that refer to authority and power, we may be tempted to think for a moment that these communicate distance between authority and subject. But what does Psalm 84 tell us? That he chooses to make his dwelling amongst his people. That God all-powerful, God ruler over all, that Lord God Almighty has chosen to make his dwelling in the midst of his people. And so his people can say, verse 3, he is my king. He is my God. He is an almighty God, but he welcomes us into his presence. Look at the imagery in verse 3. Even the sparrow finds a home. And the swallow finds a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts. 
my king and my God. The sparrow, the sparrow is the picture of the worthless animal, the worthless creature in Scripture. Jesus himself refers to this picture in Matthew chapter 10, verse 29. What does he say? Are not two sparrows sold for? Somebody said it. One penny. Are not two sparrows sold for a single penny? But even the sparrow is under the providential care of God. You can sense the imagery for the psalmist. The psalmist is desiring to be in the presence of God, and he's imagining when he's going to arrive in the temple, and he's going to be there, and God's presence is going to fill the place. And he begins to look up. And as he looks up to the rafters, there's a sparrows and a swallows flying in, and they're making a nest And he sees where they're making a nest, in the rafters near where? Near the altar of God. Even the sparrow can get close to God. The altar, of course, is the focal point in the Old Testament of the Israelite worship. It's where the sacrifices would be offered so that Israel could be forgiven of their sins, so that they could be reconciled, and that their relationship with the holy God could be restored. Even a sparrow can get near the altar. The Almighty God is saying something. He says, not only have I chosen to to dwell amongst you, I have chosen to make myself known to you, but this, follow me, I have made a way for you to be in my presence. I've made a way for you to be forgiven of sins. And as we turn forward and we look to the New Testament, we see that God still has chosen to make his dwelling among us. In John chapter 1.14, we see this. The word became what? Flesh. A reference to Jesus Christ, the very Son of God who, chose, who God chose to send in human likeness. The word became flesh and dwelt. The word there, tent, tabernacled. Tabernacle, of course, the precursor to the temple, and dwelt amongst us. And in Hebrews chapter 9, we read these astounding words. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent. Okay, this is a reference to the temple and subsequently the tabernacle that preceded it. But here we're talking about an eternal temple. An eternal altar where sacrifice would be made eternally. What does he say? Through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the mean of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. In Jesus Christ, we can say together with the psalmist in Psalm 84, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Amen? For it is in Christ that those who feel worthless, tired, exhausted, overlooked, outcast, sick, suffering, sinful, it's in Christ that we can find rest in the presence of God. It's in and through Christ that we, like a, like a sparrow, can build our home in the presence of the Almighty who makes himself known and provides the means for us to be forgiven from our sins and promises his protection and his care. You see, I firmly believe that we will never feel like worshiping God 
until we begin to grasp the magnificence of God. We begin to grasp something of the nature of the almighty God, the Lord of hosts who rules over all and yet in his magnificent nature has chosen to, through his son, make himself known to us. But when we begin to grasp the magnificence of God, we can do nothing but worship. Our desire will be all-encompassing. We will, as Jesus Christ said, we will begin to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. As we look through Christ and see God Almighty who chose to save us from our sins. All-encompassing desire for God. The second mark of the discipleship journey, I would say, is this divine strength for the journey. Divine strength for the journey. Blessed are those, verse 5, whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. In whose heart are highways to Zion. True joy will not be found in what has been once called the cul-de-sac of self-regard. It's a congested place. True joy will be found when our hearts are highways out of the cul-de-sac of self to God. True joy will be found when in us lay the desire for God that results in a heart direction for God that we fixate our entire life to be with him. But this isn't always easy, is it? Our hearts wander. We learned that earlier. Our hearts easily go astray And it seems to me from my personal experience that if we walk in our strength and our strength alone, our strength is not sufficient. We need something greater. We need divine strength for the journey because we too must walk through the valley of Baca. And maybe in your translation it says the valley of tears. That, that language there, the valley of Baca, uh, commentators d- disagree, but ultimately they know what this means, okay? Either it refers to a dry and arid place that was difficult and had these balsam trees in it, and it was a difficult place that the Israelites had to journey through to get to Jerusalem, or since the word Baca is similar to the word for tears, In Hebrew, it refers to a place of anguish and tears. In either case, it is a very difficult place. And you and I, we too, have to go through some difficult places on our journey to be in the presence of God. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says it himself, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. As we engage this discipleship journey, we will embrace difficult things. Putting off sin 
mortifying the flesh, okay? Those are not easy things. Putting on the new life that we are to have in Christ is not an easy task. To be holy as I am holy, 1 Peter 1.16, okay? That is not easy. It's going to require divine strength. But we can be encouraged, Jesus says in John 16, 33. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I, that's Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, I have overcome the world. Our discipleship journey requires effort. It is a straining forward through troubles, hardship, trials, persecutions, tribulations, suffering, sickness, disease. It is a straining forward. But it is a straining forward, not alone, but in the strength that God provides through his spirit who he has caused to dwell in us. Paul, having experienced some of the sufferings and the trials of this journey, he he says this to, to communicate something of the nature of this strength. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. Get this, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, calamity. I am content, for when I am weak, then I am strong. It's not when he relied in his own strength that he was strong. It's when his own strength, he recognized it wasn't sufficient, so he had to, with all of his being, lean upon the God who is, gives strength to the weary. Isaiah chapter 40. The God who is all-powerful and strengthens us for the journey. C.S. Lewis says it well when he says this, God gives us strength for what happens, not for the 101 things that might happen. In Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23, we read it this way, His mercies never come to an end. But then it says this, They are new every morning. We have to take up our cross how frequently? daily to follow Christ. But did you notice the effect of one who walks in the divine strength that comes from the Lord of hosts? Look down in verse 6, the second part of verse 6. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it in pools. When Christians live in God's strength, difficult places become springs of life. God's strengthening enables us to make a positive impact on our environment, on our, our workplace, on our home, on our neighborhood, on our city, on our nation, whatever difficult place we find us, God's strength enables us to make a difficult, a, a positive impact on a difficult place. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. There's a challenge. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine, what? As lights in the world. God enables us to make an impact. Not because we set out one day and say, 
I'm going to change the world. No, because we humbly sit down and say, I'm going to walk faithfully before a holy God, and I'm going to rely wholly and completely and entirely upon His strength and upon His strength alone. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. Paul says this, the the saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent, and follow this, and profitable for people. Profitable for people. When we obey God and we live in His strength, we operate and depend and rely upon His strength, a light begins to shine in a dark place that blesses those around us. Follow me here, including those who do not know the salvation that is in no other name but the name that is Jesus Christ. When Christians live in their homes with, in faithfully devoted marriages and in faithfully devoted families, it blesses husbands and wives and children. When we seek to live faithfully before God in our workplace, when we work heartily as for the Lord and not unto men, it is a blessing to our employers. It is a blessing to our co-workers. It is a blessing to customers. When Christians have deep, faithful community bonds, and we seek to be a light in a dark place. It blesses our neighborhoods. It blesses our cities. When we care deeply about the wholeness of human life, so we pursue whatever career it is that we will pursue, whether being a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer, whether we work in healthcare, or we work in customer service, we begin to bless and make a positive impact on the nation around us. We begin to turn dry and arid places. Places of tears and sorrow begin to flow with springs of life. If we look back through history, we understand that it is Christians who have led the way when it comes to things like orphanages, universities, hospitals, literate societies, Women's rights, human's rights, racial equality, electricity, even, follow me here, vaccines find their roots in Christian history. This is not because those people set out one day and said, I'm going to transform the world. It's because in humility they said, I'm going to be faithful today to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Christ. I'm going to operate today in the strength God provides. And so we can say together with them, we go from strength to strength that we might appear before God. Verse 7. Third, third mark of our discipleship journey is this, the preeminence of God's goodness. O Lord of hosts, picking up in verse 8, hear my prayer, give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. This prayer interlude we see, a prayer to God, for God to extend his goodness to the king, to the earthly ruler over Israel. It's a prayer interlude. It's a break, but it sets us up to see something of the preeminence of God's goodness. Preeminence means the superiority of God's goodness over every other choice. 
over every other option. Nothing can measure up to the goodness of God. And so the psalmist prays for the earthly ruler because the earthly ruler can provide some protection. The earthly ruler can be, in some sense, a shield. Romans chapter 13 tells us that God appoints rulers to dispense justice. Titus chapter 2, or, or sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2 reminds us to pray for them. Daniel chapter 2, 21 reminds us that, that God raises them up and God tears them down. Proverbs 21 encouragingly says this, their hearts are a stream that the Lord turns wherever he pleases. Even a king's heart is a stream in the hands of our almighty God. Earthly rulers provide temporary protections, but God is our sun and our shield. We must never think that idolatrous thought that earthly rulers are the dispensers of all that is good in our lives. A change from one politician to the next regardless of what we think of them, is not the end of the world or the beginning of a new one. The psalmist will not let his hope rest in the earthly ruler. He will pray for the earthly ruler. He will pray that God's blessing will rest upon the earthly ruler. But no sooner does he pray for the earthly ruler than his heart is redirected to the one in whom he truly hopes. For a day in your courts, God, is better than a thousand's elsewhere. Our hopes and fears in this world are not for the worlds that politicians may or may not create. Our hopes are in the preeminent God who is the bestower of all that is good. Greater is one day in his courts than thousands elsewhere. Better is one day in his courts than thousands in the courts of a king. Better is one day in his courts than thousands in the ideal political society where everybody that I voted for is in power. Better is one day in his courts than a thousand days on the beaches of Hawaii. Better is one day in his courts than a thousand days on the mountains of the Rockies. Better is one day in his courts than a thousand days standing at the edge of the magnificent Grand Canyon that he himself created. Better is one day in his courts than thousands elsewhere. And, and so we say, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The doorkeeper is probably not the Levitical role of the doorkeeper, because only the Levites could actually hold that role. Given the pilgrimage identity of this psalm, it's probably a reference to the fact that when all of these crowds of people would be coming in for the festivals and the feasts, there, there would end up being lines, and you'd have to wait in line to, to come into the temple to offer your sacrifices so that you can be restored to God. And, and he's saying this, and I think one commentator captures it beautifully when he says this, better standing room only in the theater of God's presence than a seat in the dark stalls of Satan's servants. Do you believe that? For the child of God, the slightest contact with God, even a single day, is more magnificent and satisfying than the deepest endeavors into the darkness that sin extends to us for a thousand days. A sinful life it promises us temporary satisfactions, does it not? It promises us momentary pleasures and momentary joys. James 1.14 says it lures and entices us. It plays on the desires of our hearts. 
But we all know that the deeper we go into sin, the less satisfaction we find in it. Because, James 1.15, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. By contrast, there is one who extends to us life. Verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. In Christ we know that God will not withhold any good thing because he gave us his only son. He allowed his son, sent his son, to endure the suffering and the punishment that we deserved for our sin so that he could restore us to himself. And if he, did not give, if he gave us his son, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We know no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Ephesians 2, verse 7, we are confident that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Psalm 16, I say to you, to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Psalm 1611, God makes known to me the paths of life. In his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalms 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Verse 10, the young lion suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Do you know how powerful... A lion is. A young lion suffers lack and hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing for those who walk uprightly in integrity. For the disciple who engages the journey, our desire is on the Lord. His strength is our strength. His favor and his grace is preeminent. It is the preeminent good in our lives. He is our sun and our shield. He bestows favor and honor, making and calling us as his own, adopting us as his children, calling us members of his family, promising us an eternal inheritance, eternally before him, securing us with his Holy Spirit. He bestows favor and honor. He withholds no good thing from us, blessing us with every spiritual blessing that is available in Christ. So what is my prayer for you today? I pray that our hearts might be redirected from our wandering, from our grumbling, from our complaining, that we might fix them once again on the God, the Lord of hosts, who makes himself known and provides a mean for, means for us to be in his presence. And so we can say those three blesseds from Psalm 84. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose hearts are highways to Zion. And verse 12, O Lord of, Lord, o Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who 
who trusts in you. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word for our hearts to be redirected, Lord. We pray that our hearts have deepened in their desire for you this morning, Lord. Lord, we know that the world offers us so many things, Lord, that pull and tug and entice and lure us, and they seek to lure us away from you, but you have called us on a journey to walk fully fixed, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our salvation, to set aside everything that entangles to put on all that is holy and right and good through, through your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power that you have extended to us in and through him and through your Holy Spirit, Lord. Lord, we pray this morning that as we engage the journey and whatever that may mean this week in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, even in our nation, Lord that you would help us to be a people because of our devotion to you and a desire for you that would begin to be a light in the dark place for the gospel of our Son, Jesus Christ, the only name under heaven through which we have been saved. It's in your name we pray these things now. Amen.